Welcome to Unraveling the Secrets, where we explore the connecting links between the pernicious deeds of a group of secret society outlaws who are creating a tightly controlled world society with them as bosses and you and I as slaves to their system, popularly known as the New World Order. Research indicates that most of the unexplained craft we see in our skies are from somewhere on or inside our planet. This led to research of the Hollow Earth and subterranean theories in the 1980s and 90s, which in turn led to the realization that the answers we seek are in the control of a number of elitist groups and secret societies that we call collectively the controllers. Even a quick look at recent world events should convince anyone that the controller's plan is working very well. It is these things we explore on this radio show. Join us as we work towards unraveling the secrets. Um, Sounding stupid, I'm sure, is my responsibility, but well, it's my just try to make me sound. Yeah. It's my specialty to sound stupid. My, my hair now. There you go. Yeah, uh, I'm too. Anyway, we're here today with Neil Adams, and Neil, I, I don't know where to start. Neil Adams Studios, Continuity Comics, Continuity Properties, Animatics. Wow. I mean, you, you can pretty much start anywhere. I'll talk about anything, and, uh, and uh, you can just, uh, you know what, if you just ask me a question, I'll just go. Okay. So, uh, now, if you ask me about science, I'll go for like three hours. But if you go about comics, maybe 20 minutes. All right. Well, we'll start with the comics, and we'll come back to the science for another one. How's that? Okay. Let's start with when you were a teenager. Your first job was a daily strip type of thing. Am I correct? No, I, my, first, my first job was for Archie Comics. And I did uh, the Archie joke pages. They don't have those anymore, but I was doing Archie joke pages. That was my, those were the first people that um, took pity on me and let me uh, draw something. In those days, um, there was no, well, there were no new comic book artists. I mean, there's no, there's nobody within five years my junior or five years my senior in comic books, essentially. Wow. That was a that was a barren time. So uh, when I when I wanted to get into comics and everybody told me, they not only told me that it was insane to want to get into comics, they told me that comics would be out of business in a year. Everybody, Joe Simon, uh, Bill Perry up at DC Comics, who was looking at artists as they brought work in, um, my teachers, uh, Regis Philbin, everybody that. Uh, Everybody, everybody knew that comic books were on their way out. So, so let me see, Regis Philbin for uh, career advice. Is that? No, no, no. <laughs> Actually, Joe Simon, Joe Simon for career advice. Yeah, and you know, Regis is doing pretty good for career advice. Joe Simon um, worked at Archie Comics with Jack Kirby, yep. and they were doing The Fly and a bunch of other things. And I brought my samples up there to Archie. And they, this was, they had this realistic superhero line. And I showed my work, and they said, well, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon will come in very often. So I brought samples back three separate times. Then finally, in frustration, the Archie guy said, look, why don't we get Joe Simon on the phone? You know, he's seen the samples, and maybe you'd like to talk to him. So anyway, they got Joe Simon on the phone, and, 
and Joe said to me, I mean, didn't not these exact words, although I guess I, they should ring in my head uh, throughout the rest of my life. Neil, I saw your work. I like it. I think you could do work for us, but I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to help you, but you're not going to think it's a, that I'm helping you, but I'm going to turn you down, and I'm going to advise you to do something else because, Neil, in a year from now, there's not even going to be comic books. And so you may not think this is a favor, but <laughs> this is definitely a favor, and I apologize, but sorry, I'm not going to uh, hire you. And so I said, well... Thanks, Mr. Simon. <laughs> I hung up the phone. And the guys, I turned around to the Archie guys. Uh, Victor Garlick was there at the time, who is still at Archie. And uh, I guess they must have seen the look on my face, the tragedy on my face. And they said, well, maybe you want to draw Archie comics. I said, I will do anything. And um, so I started to do Archie pages for Archie Comics. It was my first money. My mother was very happy. I was actually bringing home a paycheck. And, in fact, one day I did, uh, one week I did uh, five pages for uh, $32.50 a page. That's writing, lettering, uh, penciling, and inking. $32.50 for five pages, which at that time turned out to be, I think, 200 and something dollars. And I went to the bank and I cashed the check and I brought the money home to my mother, who was, we were having a, a rough time at the time. And uh, she was drinking coffee at the table, and she looked up at me, and I took the money, which I had cashed. I cashed the check, fives, tens, and ones, and I threw it up, and I hit the ceiling, and the money went all over the kitchen. And my mother whooped and collected the money, and uh, that was my introduction to the potential possibility that you might actually make money drawing comic books. Yep. Well, some people might. I wouldn't fit in that category. But uh, if I, I I found this on Wikipedia because I didn't know this about your history, or you can tell me if it's accurate. But you did a, a daily they never newspaper. are accurate. Huh? <laughs> you did a according to them, you did a daily newspaper strip for what was it, Marcus Welby or one of the Ben Casey, Ben, ben Casey, Casey, the neurosurgeon. Yeah, uh, Vince Edwards played Ben Ben Casey, very grumpy kind of uh, um, kind of. Kind of like, what's that new show that's on? House, with the, yeah. House, kind of like House. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I did that, but I didn't. We could hardly call it the beginning of my career because my career began when I was 18 years old, and I got the strip when I just turned 21, meaning that, that I could sign my own contract. But at that point, I had had a whole career. I had done uh, uh, comics for advertising. I did... Uh, Certainly the arts pages, then I did a, did backgrounds and other work on uh, Bat Masterson, was based, based on the Bat Masterson TV series. Those of us who remember Gene Barry doing Bat Masterson, there you go. Um, and then I did a lot of commercial work. Then I worked for Johnstone and Cushing doing comics for advertising. I did illustration work. I did, I jammed a lot of work into three years. And when I got the uh, Ben Casey work, uh, um, I, re I was really 20 years old, probably the youngest, uh, maybe not the youngest uh, syndicated cartoonist, but I think I was, certainly at the time. And uh, 
I lied to them. I told them I was 25 because I knew they wouldn't believe that somebody could do a syndicated strip at 20 years old. And uh, I competed with really the best guys out there, the um, uh, Stan Drakes and the Leonard Stars and all the rest of them. And uh, I, did, I did pretty well, considering that I was uh, just turned 21. Discount Comic Book Service, where you can save 40 to 75% off on new comics, collected editions, graphic novels, action figures, statues, and other one-of-a-kind items from DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, Boom Studios, Top Cow, Dynamite, and many, many more. Go to www.dcbservice.com for easy ordering and fast delivery. Or you can visit our brick-and-mortar location at 10202-C Coldwater Road in Fort Wayne, Indiana. DCBS, welcome home. The guy yeah. that hired you for that, I believe, according to this article I read, was Al Cap's brother? Jerry Cap. He didn't exactly hire me, because if he had money to hire me, I would have taken it. Uh, <laughs> what he did was he sucked me into the process, and, uh, and uh, everybody else seemed to get the lion's share of the money. I got $210 a week is what I got for it. So it wasn't hiring. I, I don't know if we put that into that category. I got some of the money that the syndicate sent to oh, the uh, okay. creatives. Hired and hornswoggled begin with the same letter. Yeah, con me. He was, Jerry Cap is, was the, uh, for anybody who's interested in the history of it, Jerry Cap was one of two brothers of Al Cap. The other brother was Elliot Kaplan. Uh, we come from a time where uh, Jews were always changing their names, and Al Cap, of course, was a Jewish boy. Uh, uh, Kaplan was his name, and Elliot, who didn't change his name, uh, was the writer of several comic strips, um, uh, Dr. Kildare, The Heart of Juliet Jones, Big Ben Bolt, and I, I forget the other ones. Anyway, he was a prolific comic strip writer, and Jerry, uh, Jerry was handled promotion for his brother uh, Al, and he also did. Uh, he also wanted to become a comic strip writer. And when when Elliot got Doctor Kildare, Jerry thought, "I'm going to get Ben Casey, and then I'm going to get this some artist to draw it, whoever the hell that might be." And that turned out to be me. <laughs> and you moved on from there, uh, and you did several. But one of them I'd like to uh, concentrate on. Well, you did several DC characters. You did. Of course, Batman, which you're still doing. We would call that we would call that by way profession. By the way, professionally, a come down. Usually, especially in those days, uh, you didn't rise to do comic books. You rose to do a syndicated strip. So having a syndicated strip at 20 years old was a big coup. Yeah. Going down to do comic books was considered to be a very negative thing. Um, that has changed now. Has changed very much kind, because kind of a role reversal thing. Yeah, I think uh, history has like gone back on itself, and uh, and now suddenly comic books are the big deal, and comic strips are gag a day. No, nobody cares. Pretty they much. used to people used to march on city hall if like they took a uh, little orphan Annie out of their local uh, yeah, newspaper. I do recall uh, that, and and everybody got all excited about it, but now. You know, people read the comic strips in the newspapers incidentally, they, and, and they are what we call in the business gag-a-day. Yep. 
comic books are significant and <laughs> literature. <laughs> well, they're certainly art, in my opinion. And I have, well, there you go. I have several um, four-drawer filing cabinets full of that art going back to go. when, basically, when you first started doing comic books. And when, yeah, well, I, I've got to be honest, it wasn't just because of you, it was because that was my It age. wasn't? No, really? Hmm. Although you're in a lot of those very first You could lie and tell me that it was. You're certainly the best in the business. How's that one? <laughs> That's good. Or maybe the longest lived in the business. But maybe. maybe. <laughs> the Batman history with you, uh, of course, Bob Kane and some of the others who started out with it, uh, created a mythos that you have virtually perfected. And, of course, it's moved on into the Dark Knight movies and even Batman Beyond and a whole bunch of other right. iterations that have grown out of the original character. Right. But one of the most controversial things, if I can get into that, that you did or contributed to, you didn't write it, I don't think, was the Green Arrow, Green Lantern drug issue. Uh, I had a little bit to do with it uh, on the writing end. I did not uh, write the issues. But uh, in those days where I don't know if, if, if you need a little backstory, but essentially we were doing the Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Green Arrow series um, uh, as a, essentially just to get our creative juices going. Danny O'Neill and I uh, come from a similar generation. Danny was a newspaper reporter. And I was a pain in the ass. Uh, two very similar professions. Yes. And, uh, and, and uh, I wanted to do Green, Lan Green Lantern because Gil Kane had done Green Lantern, and now he was no longer doing it, and it was being handed out to anybody who came along and was selling so badly that they were going to cancel it. And so I went to the editor and I said, I'd like to do Green Lantern. And he said, get the hell out of my office. Uh after a couple more visits to his office, he said, you're serious? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do Green Lantern. He said, why? He said, because, because Gil Kane did it, and I love Gil Kane's work, and I'd like to do Green Lantern because of that. So uh, he talked to Denny O'Neill, talked to Carmen Infantino, who was the creative director at DC Comics, talked to Denny about writing it. And what I had done in a, in a brave and bold is I had sort of reintroduce uh, Green Arrow in a new costume and a new iteration, as you so nicely phrased it, uh, so that although he appeared in one story very briefly, people loved it. People just loved that Green Arrow that I did in Brave and Bold, and nobody knew what to do with it. So Julie thought, well, why don't we put him with Green Lantern, and we'll have Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And he proposed that idea, suggested it to me, and I said, that's probably the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> it's like Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I mean, what is this, a convention of people with green in their names? Although it was stupid, and, and I have followed it up with many other stupid ideas, uh, the, the personalities of the characters did seem to appeal to Denny O'Neill and Julie, and I guess to myself. And so we started to do a series of comic books, and those series of comic books were considered to be and were called relevant comics because we talked about stuff, you know, black people. Day. 
issues of the day, significant issues of the day. And then he had some opinions in those days about things like the Chicago 7 trials and other stuff like that. Uh, I had some opinions. They weren't quite as political as that, but they definitely had to do with humanitarian issues. So we managed to get into that very heavily. But uh, we were sort of uh, pissing our way to the end of it, and uh, there were just so many issues you could tackle in comic books. And Denny was attacking the, the idea of overpopulation, which seemed to be kind of an iffy question at that time. And I was, I'm thinking, well, overpopulation, first of all, I'm drawing too many people, which is really a pain in the ass. But second of all, we're kind of running out of issues. And I thought, you know what, we're, not, we're running out of issues, but we still haven't done anything on drug addiction. Now, Denny and I had been both contacted by uh, uh, DC Comics in the city of New York to, with the possibility of doing a drug comic um, uh, that, that could be handed out at the various drug institutes. Denny O'Neill and I wrote outlines for such a comic book, and both of them were rejected because we didn't have quite the conservative approach that everybody else had. We said, you know, maybe it's schools and parents that are responsible, not quite so much the kids who uh, do drugs, because you know what? It's more fun than not. And second of all, what the hell else are you going to get if you're a teenager and dad comes home, drinks, uh, opens his whiskey and sits in front of the television and enjoys his evening while you go off and do your homework for three hours? Sometimes that bothers kids. And so we kind of implied that maybe it was everybody's responsibility and maybe everybody ought to do something about it, not just point at the kids and tell them just say no. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California Gold Rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. So they rejected our outlines, but we were sort of like left with, you know, this kind of unresolved issue. And I thought, you know, I, I'm a, I was at that time the president of, um, of our neighborhood uh, drug association. We had opened a, in the Bronx, uh, a nunnery had been turned into a drug rehabilitation center and the community got all upset and I went to a meeting and in the end, I became the president of the of the association, the neighborhood association, to integrate the the drug programs into the uh, uh, neighborhood without f screwing up the neighborhood. And you know, I'd go down and I'd help you know guys with runny noses uh, for, uh, hanging out on 42nd Street back to the institute and drag them in and uh, feed them coffee and stuff. And uh, I was kind of involved in, in the whole process. Um, and so I, 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 I went home and I thought, I don't want to miss this drug thing. So I did a cover that had Speedy <laughs> um, having just shot up, sitting at a table in an apartment with Green Lantern and Green Arrow behind them and Green Lantern saying, see, 
you're such a big hotshot liberal, here's your ward. They called them wards in those days. Here's your ward, a drug addict. And, of course, Green Arrow, you know, the high-flying liberal, was shocked and aghast. And um, I took that cover, I penciled it, and then I lettered it, and I inked it, and I took it into my editor. And he dropped it like a hot potato and said, we can't do this. And I said, yeah, but we ought to do it. And he said, we're never going to do this, Neil. You're out of your mind. We have the comics code. Then I showed it to everybody at DC Comics, and they all, you know, tried to get their hands off it as quick as possible because it burnt. Anyway, everybody, first they said, we're not going to pay you for this. I said, well, I understand you're not going to pay me for it. I'm not asking to be paid for it. I just think we ought to do this book. Okay, you're out of your mind. We know who you are, Neil. You're one of the nuts, so goodbye. I went over to uh, Marvel Comics just to hang out one day, and I talked to Johnny Romita, and Johnny Romita showed me this Spider-Man comic book that Stan had had written, and Johnny had drawn where a character had, like, walked off a roof because he was popping pills. I am not aware of anybody, quote, popping pills and walking off a roof, but I thought it was an interesting stab at in, in the Stan Lee genre of talking about drug addiction. So I, I, uh, I said, what's going to happen with the book, Johnny? Johnny said, I don't know. I have no idea. But I, the, the comics code said that they're not going to uh, – we can't do it. I said, so what has Stan decided to do? I mean, what's going to happen? And he said, well, Stan um, said we're going to – he went to his uncle, who was the publisher – and his uncle said, do whatever you want. And Stan decided to run the book without the Comics Code seal. And so I went back a couple of weeks later after the book had come out. I went to see Johnny, and I said, what happened with the Spider-Man book? He said, nothing. I said, what do you mean, nothing? He said, well, we haven't gotten a letter. Nobody even noticed the Comics Code seal wasn't there. Nobody has said anything. We have no letters, nothing from anybody. I said, no kidding. Wow. Well, I went over to DC Comics, and that the shit had hit the fan. <laughs> they already had this cover, and Stan had aced them. Yes. Beat the hell out of them. So here they were with this cover. Well, let me just tell you, the Comics Code Authority was owned and run by the comic book publishers. It wasn't an outside organization. They decided to police themselves. Right. So they got together within the next week, and two weeks later, maybe three, the Comics Code was rewritten from top to bottom. Wow. And they were, it was presented to my editor, Julie Schwartz, and he said, I guess we're going to do that comic book. And we did. Cool. It turned out to be a two-parter. So you, you had half a hand in breaking the code. And Stan had yeah, the well, other half. Yeah, well, you know... I think I think I think the fact I think the frustration of DC Comics and the balls of Stan basically is what did it. But I would have to give credit to Stan. Stan was the one who balls it through. I think I did it first, but it just sat there. Stan right. was able to push it. Yeah. And it, and and he was perfectly right. And of course I was perfectly right. It was a non-issue. It was baloney because we had gone past the days of the comics code. It, it, should, it shouldn't have existed anymore. Just that those kinds of things hang out 
until something happens to get rid of them. Uh, uh, Everything in society, it seems to me, hangs out way way past its time. It just sits around and festers and turns to crap on you while everything moves on. And nobody gets up and says, hey, time to change this. Time to give the uh, artists their artwork back. Uh, Time to pay royalties. Time to do those kinds of little things that should have been done 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I guess somebody's going to have to blow, you know, throw a a stink grenade in the elevator uh, before anybody's going to wake up. Part of what you're doing nowadays is motion graphics. Can we get into that? Motion comics, yeah. Sure. Uh, Well, it's we've done uh, because I have a because I have an advertising studio. We do we supply advertising work for for advertising agencies. One of the things that we do are things called animatics. Animatics are um, commercials that are drawn and have a soundtrack and are and have some animation. And they're basically uh, commercials that never get to the air. They're test commercials. And we've been doing them for, I guess, for as long as I've been drawing uh, anything so basically uh, for advertising an- agencies. Uh-huh. Basically, they're animated storyboards. Is that basically they're animated storyboards on on a very high level? Sure. Now, for the last ten years, I've been trying to convince DC and Marvel to do motion comics, to do a thing called motion comics, that is to animate comic books with this technique and to present it as whether it's TV shows or videos or however the presentation is, that it's a good way to present a comic book. And, of course, they've said, oh, that's interesting. What is that? We yeah. tried to explain it, and, of course, it fell on deaf ears for 10 years. Finally, over at DC Comics, um, who's the guy that, that uh, did the Watchmen movie? Um, you mean the producer? This is the, the area you cut out when you edit this. No, the director. Um, name escapes me. Okay, name escapes both of us. Anyway, the director of the Watchmen movie, who had a lot of wheels at that time, before the movie was made, not after the movie was made, but before the movie was made, a lot of wheels. He said, why don't you take the graphic novel and turn it into an animatic or a motion comic? And they said, huh? He said, no, you can, like, we do this for movies all the time. We do this kind of fake animation, and we and we do it to do scenes and stuff. Why don't you do that with the graphic novel? Well, because he had wheels, they said, sure, we'll do that. And so they did. So the Watchmen became a motion comic. It's crappy, and, it, well, no offense, but, you know, it's, it's got one guy narrating the whole thing, women's voices and everything else. Not yeah. a good idea. Then it has balloons floating in the panels. Not a good idea. Then it has very limited animation. Not a good idea. So there's a lot of not a good ideas in there. But they did it. Okay. Then over at Marvel, at the same time, almost the same instant, Stephen King wanted to experiment with kind of doing a motion comic or doing an animatic of one of his short stories. And so he and his producers and CBS and Random House, I believe it was Random House, his publisher, um, uh, 
hired Marvel Comics to do a work made for hire for them because Marvel was doing a lot of stuff in, on, on the Internet that showed kind of animated comic book panels and stuff. And so they hired Marvel. They didn't come to us, which was would have been the perfect thing to do. They hired Marvel. And they Marvel had Alex Maleev illustrated. Alex Maleev was a very good artist, excellent artist. And, and then they used their people on staff to create little animations, semi-animations. And they presented that as, uh, um, well, again, it, not very good. Not very good because technique-wise, although the art was fantastic and the soundtrack was fantastic, there was no animation, literally no animation. So... And so when we went to, now that this was going on, we went to Marvel in D.C. and said, look, we've been doing this for years, for, for decades. Yep. We know how to do this better than anybody. You should have us do it. Well, uh, then we showed samples and kind of messed up people's heads. And then we showed how uh, Stephen King's thing could have, be, could have been done better with moving mouths and gestures and stuff. And finally, Marvel said, hey, you know, that, this is pretty good. They had us do a sample with uh, Frank Miller stuff, and that turned out so good that they gave us the uh, X-Men uh, gifted graphic novel for us to animate, turn into a motion comic. And we did. I would say it is the best motion comic to date, okay? It is still not as good as we sh should have done, would have done, if the budget were a little bit better. I think if, if it were a little bit better and we did the things that we might have done and we can do now technologically, it would be as good as any animated film. Probably better because we're using the artist's work and the writer's words. Sure. So everything in this gifted motion comic is the artist's work, and the writer's words. It's not an adaptation. It's the graphic novel made to move. So there's lots of stuff in it that, as the comic book fan, I would, and I'm sure you would, appreciate because I'm looking at one of my favorite artists' work, and I'm looking at one of my favorite writer's words, or listening to my one of my favorite writer's words, rather than Bruce, Tim, and... and uh, Warner Animation doing this kind of a adaptation that, although nice, yeah. has nothing to do with the actual product as it was presented.
salt congestive from nasal allergies. Let's tell his mom. You go. But to be honest, I'm lucky to have lived through that day. I almost didn't. That train was barreling down the Colson freight yards and it wasn't slowing down for me. I had climbed up on the freight car and suddenly I realized it wasn't a freight car at all. It's just a job after all. How hard is it to press reset before you turn me off? Looks like a United Animal Space Frigate to me. <laughs> Your last blossom beckons. You never loved me. Oh. You down spicy food. Have oh, I've got such a headache. This pile of junk is at the lead in. Yes. That ain't half the problem. Part of this unit don't even coexist in the same time continuum with us. Not easy being green. I tried it once. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California Gold Rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A. A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. Yeah, the problem with all of this is that that amount of work has to be monetized. Somebody has to make money on it for it to be worthwhile. So far, it's very difficult to do that. Marvel Comics has produced a videotape. First of all, they did they, 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 they did it on the internet and did it a couple of places on the internet and had moderate success. Then they did uh, a reissue of the graphic novel with the uh, tape inside, the, the disc inside, the CD inside which they made more money on. Then they did a licensed out uh, uh, DVD. The DVD turned out to be pretty good. Uh, I don't know how many they sold or, or whether the royalty from that is worth it, but had it been done directly by, by Marvel Comics, sure. maybe Marvel Comics in association, in association with Disney, which they happen to be associated with very heavily now, yep. I think that they would have made a very good profit, especially the way Disney markets DVDs anyway, and CDs. Anyway, they, they weren't able to go that route, and so the question is, is it worth doing it? So now they're doing motion comics as promotion for films and other stuff. They haven't taken that next step, nor has DC taken that next step. I know what the next matter of time, we will see motion comics of our favorite comic books. Sure. It's just it's just trying to kickstart the engine it and is. to make 
to try to cause the companies to do business. See, comic book companies are used to, I do the comic book, I put it out on Wednesday, and if by next Wednesday I don't sell out of those comic books, I'm not making money. Right. That's not, that's not how you sell a movie. That's not how you sell a DVD or a CD. You do it with a plan, and the plan doesn't take a week. It stretches out over time. Like Disney, if you were to say, how does how does Disney monetize Snow White? Well, they're still monetizing. It. Yes. And every, every time they reissue, years every later, decade, they're still making money on it. Exactly. Every decade that they reissue Snow White, they make more money that decade than they made the decade before because they were able to raise the prices and all that. Yep. So there's there's no bottom line to to the monetizing of something that's in this format. And if you think about it, the money they paid to have it done to, to the, at the beginning is the beginning of the monetization. So there's not this uh, business plan that makes this thing work. So they're using it for experimental purposes to try to monetize it. They're right. using it to promote their projects, but they're really not seriously moving forward on it. They just haven't figured so out how you know, to we're, we're, they just haven't figured out how to include it in their existing paradigm business model. Stuff. It's it's hard. It's hard. You know, life is life is tough. We we're we're ready to do it. I think that there are some plans that we have uh, that are going to be perhaps more successful in a in a project that I have, but I, I'm not ready to talk about it because we haven't you know, signed all the papers and stuff. But, right. yeah, I, th I feel continuity is going to be doing motion comics for a long, long time. I think so, too. Uh, another thing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you just recently finished up a new Batman series. Is that correct? Well, I didn't exactly finish it. I mean, the, the uh, fifth issue is out now, is out this week, and it's called Batman Odyssey, and it's uh, – it's a very adventurous um, uh, kind of. It's not a retelling of the Batman story. It's the. It's getting Batman used to uh, the society that we are in now, with all the firepower that's out there. How does Batman deal with it? I mean, after all, he goes around without guns, and he's got his little utility belt and stuff, and somehow is supposed to uh, fight off AK-47s. Not quite so easy. No. So. Uh, so we have so we've approached that story and done um, I think a pretty good story um, uh, that uh, issue five is out and there's going to be 13 uh, stories in all. I'm working on the last one at, the, at this time and uh, I'm getting some inkers involved uh, like um, Jim uh, what's his name uh, Bill Sienkiewicz is working on uh, issue six with me. Um, uh, was Jim Lee's uh, anchor? Uh, why, why can't I think of his name at this moment? Uh, <laughs> See, you're not a big comic book fan. I'm not a. I'm not a data fan. Right. The, you know, I'm a fan of the overall product. Right. 
Josh something. But anyway, so we're it's it's really it's really my revisiting Batman uh, and taking him through an epic adventure. That when I say Odyssey, it really is an Odyssey. I mean, it, there's just no question about it. Uh, he is going through a life-changing experience, and so um, and it'll be collected as a graphic novel and all the rest of it. But the issues are very exciting. There's lots of really. I mean, in this current issue, we have uh, Dead Man in the Body of Joker, kind of teasing Batman in the Batmobile, and he's saying things like, um, "Has it occurred to you, Batman, that you're constantly going out fighting clowns?" <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's you got the Mad Hatter, and you got the Riddler, and you got the Penguin. Yeah, Mr. Freeze, and you have me, the Joker. You know, like it doesn't doesn't occur to you that maybe somebody's messing with you? Uh, it's just a bunch of clowns. I mean, do they have lots of clowns in Metropolis? <laughs> and so Mickey's he's playing, kind of messing but... with Batman's mind, and Batman has to go, hmm, hmm, what's going on here? Maybe somebody is messing with me. I mean, what do they do with us, Batman? I mean, they, you, you arrest us, they take us in, in, in court, and they, they decide that we're insane. They put us in Arkham Asylum, and periodically we escape and screw with you again. Doesn't that sound like a plan? Doesn't that sound like somebody is in control of uh, you, and every time they want you to be distracted, they just let another clown out to screw with you? Oh, wow. I mean, oh, wow. <laughs> Good thought, because I call them the controllers to begin with, but nevertheless. Discount Comic Book Service, where you can save 40 to 75% off on new comics, collected editions, graphic novels, action figures, statues, and other one-of-a-kind items from DC, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, Boom Studios, Top Cow, Dynamite, and many, many more. Go to www.dcbservice.com for easy ordering and fast delivery. Or you can visit our brick-and-mortar location at 10202-C Coldwater Road in Fort Wayne, Indiana. DCBS, welcome home. So, the, that's your current stuff, the Batman stuff, as well as the continuity and uh, animatic stuff. What, what do you have future? I mean, do you have something coming out for Kindle or whatever? Um, okay, well, what do we have in the future? I have uh, a graphic, a short graphic novel on uh, using the Wolverine for Marvel. So that's my next project. I have a thing called Blood, which is a, an independent project that I intend to uh, animate. Um, we're doing uh, we're doing um, more um, motion capture in our studio. And I'm going to be using motion capture also in the motion comics. So with blood, we're going to have half animatic, half motion capture, and, wow. and full animation whenever we feel like it's a good idea to use it. Full animation in the sense that it's like CGI animation. It's not 50 guys in Czechoslovakia drawing pictures. It's more uh, CGI, a little bit grittier and uh, more interesting. And so. So it's it, what's happened is that in the last uh, couple of years, I've starting with the motion comics, and because I've done such a ton of advertising, I've sort of stepped away from comics until all the technology has finally caught up to me. Sure. Which is one of the reasons why I kind of stepped away from it because 
the, the moving the technology forward is so slow and tedious and such a pain in the butt that I would rather have spent, and I did, spend time doing other stuff, developing our technology, doing the advertising and all the rest of it, waiting for that moment when eh, maybe it's time for me to come back and to, and to kick some butt and, and to play around. So now, because of the motion comics, I'm kind of sucked back into comics. So now I'm doing Batman, now I'm doing Wolverine, now sure. I'm doing Blood, and now maybe film. Okay. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be a lot of congratulations, even on a maybe. Yeah. And, no, and if you have a role, exciting for if you have a role for an interviewer, let me know, will you? Right there, you go. Anyway, Neil, I appreciate it, and I hope to catch up with you again now that we have you on Uvu. It'll be a little easier. And uh, let us know what's coming down the pike for you. We'll get back with you in a few months and see how everything's going right. with you again. Does that work? Cool. That sounds good to me. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California Gold Rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more.